Hey guys, it's Noel. Before we get to this week's guest, just wanted to talk about the passing of Rob Garrison, who passed away last week at the age of 59. Rob had the legendary performance of Tommy in The Karate Kid, Karate Kid 2, and made a guest appearance in Cobra Kai Season 2 just this past year. We had him on the show earlier in the year, and in fact, it's still the highest rated show of 2019 and go check out the episode because um, Rob gives some good stories about filming the movie uh, just about what he was doing post his uh, movie career so I just wanted to give my condolences to his friends and family Rob Garrison passing away at the age of 59 all right this week's guest is actor Anthony Stark you may not know his name but you definitely know his work Anthony played probably the best one-off guest star in Seinfeld's history, that being Jimmy. We talk about that character, we talk about some of his other work. Return of the Guild of Tomatoes, which he co-starred with George Clooney. Uh, he was in a Bond movie. Anthony worked with some amazing comedians throughout his career. George Burns, Jackie Gleason, Tom Hanks, George Carlin, to name a few. Uh, we talk about all of that, we talk about his other works. Very insightful guy, very interesting guy, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Anthony. So, Tony, uh, thank you so much for joining me. I, I really appreciate it. And um, I, before I usually, like, I put my episodes out every Wednesday. So when I do, like, the day before, I'll usually kind of tease what's, what's coming on. Or if I interview somebody, I'll tease them as well. So a couple weeks ago, I had uh, Robert Hayes on from Airplane. And he, oh, yeah, sure. yeah, and he voiced um, one of his roles. He voiced Tony Stark in Iron Man. I, oh, interesting. So, yeah, so for a cartoon. So I said, you know, coming up on the next Reliving My Youth, Tony Stark. So everyone freaked out because everyone thought that I had Robert Downey Jr. on. And uh, you know, of course, my you know my small little podcast, I'm not getting Robert Downey Jr. on. So I, um, you know, I had some fun with people, and then uh, our mutual friend Steve Cooper messaged me and saying you're getting anthony stark on and you you're always on my list to get on because i'm you know a big fan of your work and i'm like no but he's like i can give you his contact info i'm like awesome perfect i I always wanted to get you on so so i gotta thank uh steve cooper from cooper talk from getting you on here oh yeah he's a great guy yeah he's he's great really really funny guy so uh yeah so that was just kind of funny but with, with you know, obviously now with the Avengers being big and you know all the cartoon characters, uh, how um, how is it difficult for you to have that name, or you kind of have fun with it now? Well, it, it's never been a, it's never been a problem really because for two reasons, um, one being that the other Tony Stark is fictional, right? <laughs> uh, and, and I'm a real person. Uh, if it were the other way around. If, uh, if if uh, if Iron Man's alter ego were named uh, Robert Downey Jr. Um, and being played by another actor named Tony Stark, whose uh, career went through the roof, then uh, that might that might clobber me. Um, but given the way it is, it's it's fine because um, it makes my name easier for people to remember. And also because uh, professionally I go by Anthony Stark, and my name Stark is spelled with an E at the end. It's it's just different enough that there's never any confusion when someone's looking to find me online or in social media between that and um, and uh, you know the fictional Tony Stark. Right. Are you a fan of those movies or no? Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. And I, I, I've been aware of uh, Iron Man and that, you know, that uh, Iron Man's real name is Tony Stark since I was a kid. Because before the, uh, before the movies, there were, there were animated cartoons on TV right. that, um, you know, had all of the Marvel characters, you know, from the Hulk to, you know, Iron Man and, and Captain America, etc., yeah, it's it's amazing how how it's blown up now into this huge phenomenon. I, mean, I was a big com- comic book fan back in you know back in the day, but now it's just like it's mainstream like uh, nothing else. Right. Yeah. So speaking, of, you know, 
you mentioned you're, you know, being a kid. Uh, when did you like first like get involved in acting? When did you really know that this was going to be your passion, profession? Well, I think that it, it started basically from being a fan of mostly television. I, I sometimes used to say to people that when I, when I was a kid, I loved TV so much that by the time I became an adult, I found a way to crawl inside of it, <laughs> you know, and, uh, uh, and my, you know, my first acting teachers were really um, TV stars from the 70s mostly, um, you know, and mostly that, that lineup of uh, classic sitcoms uh, on CBS on Saturday nights, particularly that had, um, you know, All in the Family and MASH and the Bob Newhart show right. and Harry Tyler Moore show and then everything culminating with the Carol Burnett show. And that, that got me very fascinated with comedy, particularly. And uh, then when I got a little bit older, um, um, I had... Uh, my high school drama teacher, for example, who would bring us up to the Stratford Shakespeare Festival in Ontario. And we would see these great live productions of, of everything from Shakespeare to Oscar Wilde. And that really kind of fired up my imagination um, about the potential of, of making a career out of it. Um, and also another influence on me was... Um, PBS, okay. um, because along with Monty Python and other stuff that, that I loved, um, they also had um, Masterpiece Theater, which uh, had a production called I, Claudius, right, right. starring De Derek Jacoby, um, and his performance absolutely knocked me out. You know, and so it was, it was an accumulation of things, and then finally by the time I went to college, I'd done a lot of plays already in high school and community theater, and I auditioned for a performing arts scholarship, and I won it to Marquette University, and that kind of, you know, kind of cinched me becoming a theater major. It was, uh, it was interestingly enough, it was a performing arts scholarship that was donated to the university by Liberace. Oh, wow. Um, because Liberace was from Milwaukee, and um, so he donated a bunch of money to Marquette University, um, also in Milwaukee, um, to kind of create this foundation. And um, I was uh, I was the first uh, one to win it. So it, it really kind of helped me through college, also. Right. Did uh, Did you meet him? Did he like present the scholarship to you? I um, when they had like three recipients of the scholarship, um, we were invited to go see one of his concerts in Milwaukee, uh, which was a trip, right. um, as, you can, as you can imagine. Oh, sure. And there was, uh, there was a, like, after the uh, performance, there was a photo op with the three of us and him uh, kind of pro promoting his foundation. And um, it, was, uh, it, was, it was fun. He was very nice. Right. Yeah, he totally seems like a large-in-life character. <laughs> Completely, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, were your were your parents like on board with like you pursuing this profession? Uh, no, they were not. No. Um, you know, the the idea. Even after I won the scholarship, my dad said, "Okay, congratulations, you're a theater major," because I had to be in order to accept the scholarship. Okay, but he said, "You know, you're also going to double major in something else and go to law school," and that was really the plan. And so, I had a double major in Spanish literature. And I was a, a very good student, and it was my junior year, and it was time for me to take the LSATs, the, the you know, the, the kind of uh, entry exams for law students. And uh, I kind of went into a big depression because I realized by that point it wasn't really what I wanted to do. I really wanted to have a go at making a career out of acting. Right. And my parents were not too pleased, you know, being sort of um, very pragmatic immigrants from the Netherlands. They didn't see the benefit of me uh, taking my college education and then, you know, 
trying to make a living as an actor. And uh, so they would send me articles of, about the statistics of how actors never work and all <laughs> right. that kind of stuff. So I realized I needed to do something quick if I were going to get them on board. And um, uh, I was in Milwaukee. I managed to get a, um, um, an agent in Milwaukee, which is, you know, in, in, in the mid-'80s was not too hard. You know, uh, this was a teeny tiny agency, right? And um, and yet um, there was a lot going on in Chicago at that time in terms of film production, be, because of people like John Hughes, of course, yeah, making these movies like Sixteen Cam- Candles and and The Breakfast Club. And I was sort of like, it felt like I had my hair on fire. I had such an urgent desire to get down to Chicago and start reading for some of these things. And um, so my agents got me a meeting with Jane Alderman, who was the major casting director in Chicago at that time and for quite a long time after. And um, she kind of, she liked, you know, my audition that I gave for her, and then she brought me in for a couple things. And I ended up getting a movie of the week back when they had those for CBS, and that's what got, got me started and got my, uh, my SAG card. So, were your parents kind of like impressed with your with your role in First Steps? And once once I demonstrated that I could actually get a job that would play on their television and that I actually got paid for it, <laughs> they really turned around. They said, "Okay, well, all right, I guess this is for real." And then they became very supportive. Right, and then you pretty much got a series like a year later with Danny Thomas, right? Yeah, I mean, I really was fortunate that, um, you know, um, about, a, you know, because I got that movie of the week while I was a junior uh, in, in, at Marquette, and um, and then right after I graduated, um, Jane, Jane Alderman had been bringing me in for various people to read for various projects, and uh, I, at one point... Um, I read for Saturday Night Live, and um, I read for Al Franken and Tom Davis. Okay. And they liked me enough to bring me in for Lauren Michaels, so I made it kind of like to the final cut wow. for people in Chicago. I also read read for, you know, Ferris Bueller's Day Off and other things like that, but where I, I uh, managed to get lucky was when Gary Marshall was in town casting uh, Nothing in Common and, you know, with Tom Hanks and Jackie Mason already on board. And um, I I came in and read for him. And um, uh, it was just some copy that they had. And he he liked what I did with it and he thought it was funny. So uh, Gary said, uh, so do you do the improv? You know, where you make it up. Do you know about the improv? Because he kind of talked like that. And then right. said, uh, I said, uh, yes, actually, I had my own improv group up in Milwaukee. We're called Razor's Edge. <laughs> and uh, because we do everything based on audience suggestions, it's pure improv. And he said, good, good, because we're having a callback on sun- Sunday. And you get, it's going to be you and the very best Second City's main company and a guy named Julio who I liked, you know, and I'm like, great, that sounds great. And I get in my car and I drive back up the I-94 to my little hometown in Lindenhurst, Illinois, about an hour north of Chicago. And I walk in the house and my parents are, you know, kind of peeking around the corner going, how does it go? You know, and, uh, and I just kind of wave at them like I can't talk right now. And they went up to my bedroom and basically started crying. Right. Because the whole thing was a lie. Yeah. You know, I, I'd never done any improv in my life. And I thought, what am I going to do here? And so uh, I knew that the premise of the movie was going to be about the advertising business. And we were all going to be people in, in an ad office. So I just wrote a bunch of, like, wacky pitches for commercials where I could plug in characters that I like to do and accents that I like to do. And, um, and I thought, you know, I'm just going to lay in the weeds. And when, when the opportunity presents itself, I'm going to plug in these little bits that I've written. And it ended up working out so well that you couldn't tell that I was cheating. Mm-hmm. And that's how I got in my first movie. And, 
about 25 years later, I was doing a play with Gary at his beloved Falcon Theater in uh, in Toluca Lake in, in Burbank. Um, and um, I said to him one day, you know, uh, Gary, I have a, a confession to make. And then I, I, I told him how I lied my way into his movie. Right. And he just, he just said, I love that story. We're doing a talk back with, uh, with the audience. Tell that story. So every night when we had to talk back and there was a lull in the conversation, uh, he would have me tell that story. So um, that's a fond memory also because it's the last play that Gary ever directed. And uh, Falcon Theater is now the Gary Marshall Theater. Oh, that's great. So you actually did a little bit. But, uh, but, but, back, but back to what you were uh, saying, that movie, Nothing in Common, is what brought me out to L.A. And um, it was really just a few months later, and partly based on the recommendation of Gary Marshall, right. that um, they read me for the Danny Thomas show, um, uh, one, one Big Family. And the connection there was that um, Danny Thomas had been a mentor to Gary Marshall. Uh, Danny actually, I think, hired Gary for his first writing gig, his first like official showbiz writing gig for uh, the Dick Van Dyke show, which Danny produced along with Sheldon Leonard. And um, so when they were, uh, when Tony Thomas, Danny Thomas's son, who was the producer, you know, uh, the very famous Whit Thomas, uh, or Whit Thomas Harris production. Oh, yeah, there, the Golden Girls. They were yeah, our yeah. producers, and they were kind of looking around for this lead character and having a hard time, and they happened to talk to Gary about it, and Gary just worked with me, and he put in the good word, so they brought me in, and I ended up getting it. So was that like, were you always wanting to do, like, go out west and do the TV and films, or like, I know growing up and being in college, you know, being the stage and theater, did you kind of want to go towards Broadway? You know, I, I think that I always really, I, I think probably if, if, if there was one thing I loved the most, it was probably sitcoms. Right. You know, and for about the first 15 years of my career, that's most of what I did. Yeah. Um, but I didn't think it, was, it would be accessible. You know, and it was a series of, 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 of you know, strokes of luck. That, that brought me out to, to L.A. And, and, and finding my way onto a sitcom. Because really, when I was in college and I was just starting to work in Chicago, really the plan for me was to be a Chicago theater actor. And, um, uh, you know, um, but it just went this different direction. And, I, I, you know, because I, I thought that's something I can do is I, I can break my way into the Chicago theater scene. And I had just gotten cast in my first play um, in, in Chicago when I got cast in the movie uh, with Gary Marshall that brought me to L.A. So I, I just kind of bypassed all that, went straight to L.A. And But ironically, uh, you know, about 20 years later in, in, in 2004, um, uh, at that time I was married. I'm now divorced, but I was married at the time and my son was little, and my my wife got very sick, and so I, di I didn't know how to kind of keep things going out here. I needed some help taking care of her and my son, so I moved us all back to the Chicago area, back to my own hometown, so I could have some, some help from my mother and my sister kind of looking after things while I tried to get back working in Chicago. Right. So ironically, I ended up spending about two years in Chicago at that time, working in the theater. And um, uh, I worked, I also did the first, you know, a recurring on the, uh, a recurring character on the first season of Prison Break. Right, yeah. But I also worked at, at the, the Goodman Theater and um, um, and doing uh, a production of Dollhouse, playing opposite Maggie Sith, who's now on Billions and before that yeah. was on Sons of Anarchy. Right. And, uh, um, but I also did Kabuki Theater at Chicago Shakespeare and had some very interesting experiences. But that's, strangely enough, when that was my period for being a Chicago theater actor was much, much later. Okay. Yeah. Now, you, you mentioned Prison Breaks. So I'll just go there real quick. Um, that, that show was very wild, very unpredictable. Um, you, you were Robin Tunney's fiance, And 
as a recurring character, right. yeah, as a recurring character, I think he got killed off maybe what fifth episode, sixth episode, or something like that. Uh, something like that, yeah. Yeah. So, so when you like read like your script and you find out that you you know you're gonna die, what is like your reaction? Well, that's funny you should ask because that is a particularly memorable uh, uh, occasion of that. I've had that, that happen to me a few times. Right. You know, because they don't tell you in advance. Right. They just send you the script and you get to find out reading the script that you get killed. And um, I was really enjoying working on that show. I thought it was a great character, and I thought the way they had the character positioned that that character could go on and on and on because it put Robin Tunney's character in this conflict between, you know, kind of between her head and her heart. Yeah. Should she go, you know, for my character, who's the, the sensible, logical choice, you know, the, 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 uh, the doctor who's in love with her and all this kind of stuff, or did she go for, you know, the, 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 the convict yeah. who she's actually in love with? even though it makes no sense. And I thought that they could have kept that conflict going uh, a long, long time. But instead, you know, I'm, I was reading through that episode and I was thinking to myself, uh, you know, this is a good episode for me. And then I turned the page and it says, you know, his, his lifeless eyes stare at the ceiling as he lays in a pool of his own blood. And I thought, <laughs> wow, this is a really bad episode for me. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and so that, I think that's how I found out. Right. <clears throat> yeah, and it, I think it was what Frank Grillo who killed you, right? No, no, Frank Grillo didn't kill me. Oh no, was, okay. Uh, another another great actor. I think he's uh, a man in the high castle now. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he's a, he's a big dude. Um, strangely enough, I, I know Frank Grillo. Okay. Um, you know because we used to, you know kind of work work out in the same gym and okay. we're both into to boxing and fighting and stuff like that right. so we'd both be hitting the heavy bag and stuff um uh but this was a this was another guy who was um kind of a bald-headed tall actor from new york who's quite excellent and unfortunately i can't pull his name out of my head right now right okay i'll have to figure out yeah it's been a while since i saw that show but yeah yeah I was just t- trying to tie it together with Frank Grillo, who was also in those Marvel movies as well. <laughs> was also in what? He was in those Marvel movies. He's like in Captain America and oh, Avengers. Yeah, yeah. 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 He's done quite well lately. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, yeah, kind of back to the beginning of that again. So with like nothing, nothing in common, like being like your first big movie and you have like two comedic legends, one kind of like on the rise and one kind of like in his final couple role, Jackie Gleason. What was the experience like working with Jackie Gleason? Well, it actually was it was the final film appearance for Jackie Gleason, and um, I was a big fan of the Honeymooners, right. you know, uh, you know, which I saw in reruns when I was little. I, I found his 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 back and forth with um, with 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 Art Carney, and I think it was Audrey Meadows. Yeah. I always get Audrey Meadows and Jane Meadows confused, but I think Audrey Meadows was yeah, on. Yeah, was she, on, yeah, um, she was Alice. Yeah, uh, yeah, she was Alice. Um, I always thought he was fantastic. I mean, but I didn't have any scenes with him, but I did see him in the hair and makeup trailer, and I introduced myself, and you know, just so I could so I could meet him. Right. But he um, he seemed um, he seemed it was very parallel to the character that he played. He didn't seem well. Okay. You know, he seemed like like you know like he maybe was not in the greatest health. Right. But um, just, he, he didn't seem like he was feeling too great. But despite that, I thought he gave a wonderful performance in the movie. And um, but uh, I got to work. I mean, I really had the the, the opportunity to really uh, meet some old school comedy legends and work with some old school comedy legends early on in my career. I mean, I worked with Jackie Gleason, Danny Thomas, and then George Burns. I know that's crazy. You know, <laughs> in eighteen again, so it's really crazy. And then you know. And then of, of, of the a newer school, at least at the time, it was a thrill for me to you know spend spend a, uh, over a year working with the great George Carlin. Right. But um, uh, who was a, a lovely human being. But um, also, uh, I got a, a chance to really work with Tom Hanks, which was fun. 
because, you know, we were all kind of in this little mosh pit of, of improvisers, and he was jumping right in, and he, he's, a, he's very, obviously, as you, you can tell from just his talk show appearances, very funny in his own right, and yes. light on his feet, right. you know, whether it's in the script or not, he'll, he'll pull something out of his hat. And, um, yeah, yeah I, I very much enjoyed working with him, too. Yeah, I mean, because, like, his career just, I mean, because he's all those, you know, comedy roles he had were were just, you know, legendary and they were great. And then just for him to, like, kind of, I guess it started with Big and then kind of, you know, with Philadelphia and, and all those movies kind of really went serious. So it's amazing how his career is kind of, like, transformed. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's done he's done everything. Yeah. And, um, and I think, you know... Um, He's just a phenomenally skillful actor. You know, he, he can he you put him in any circumstance, and he'll find a way to make it work. Yeah, he, and I'm sure he's probably writing his acceptance speech for the Oscar for portraying Mr. Rogers already. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then I have to talk about this movie because I absolutely love it, and it's a cult classic, Return of the Killer Tomatoes. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, um, and you know, probably one of George Clooney's like one of his first roles. Um, and you also worked with John Aston, another comedy legend. People forget about as well. Um, how was oh, yeah. that? Yeah, how was that film to work on? Oh, that was a ton of fun. You know, we just like it was like this raucous five-week summer camp in San Diego where we were shooting uh, the summer of '87. And um, George and I got along wonderfully and had a great time, you know, and we were working all day together. And then, you know, when we were on our days off, we'd hang out and go see a movie or whatever. And um, we were pretty good friends for a few years after that. And um, uh, and, and he's, he's, he's very fun on a set, kind of famously now, you know, with all the practical jokes and stuff like that. And... Um, but uh, John Ashton uh, was a lovely guy. Um, I, I believe he's passed away, hasn't he, John Ashton? Uh, I'm not sure. I think he, I think he has. Uh, I yeah. can speak about him in the past tense. Well, let me just say, in my experience, he was. Right. I, I can say that, you know. Um, no, I think he, he's still alive. He's, uh, he's a very very spiritual guy, a, a Buddhist, and um, very interesting guy. And then, you know... Um, you know, he had his sixteen-year-old uh, son kind of uh, hanging out on the set and kind of, um, you know, uh, you know, trailing behind me and George, uh, trying to get our attention. That was uh, Sean. that was Sean Ashton. Right. You know, he, he was like just a kid, and um, but you know, very nice. And um, of course, uh, you know, a few years later, he was uh, he was. Uh, uh, Sam in the, in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Yeah. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, and uh, Karen Mistel, who was the, the leading lady in that. Right. Every, everybody was a lot of fun. John DiBello, yeah. the director, and all, all of the producers were a lot of fun. And I just really loved that script when I read it. You know, it was obviously a goof of a movie, but... I thought it was genuinely funny, and, and the script itself made me laugh out loud. And what wasn't in the script, you know, they gave um, George and I a free hand to kind of improvise some things. So I think it ended up being a, a, a silly, fun little movie, which is all it was ever intending to be. Right. Yeah, no, it's, it's very clever, and it's having, you know, break the fourth wall with the production costs and the product placements. It's, it's, it, was, it was really clever. I, I, you know, I think, I think we were the first movie that I'm aware of that made a big running gag out of product placement, Yeah, you know, which was becoming a bigger and bigger thing at the time. And I think it, that ended up being a classic, uh, classic joke because it, you know, it, there's only more and more of it, you know, uh, as we've gone along. Right. And then obviously, you know, the whole premise of the movie, you know, the ban of tomatoes and everything like that. And you guys and your uncle run a pizza place. So, Got to be a little creative with the, with the pizzas that you guys made. Did you, did you try any of the ones that you actually uh, created? Yes, I did, and I, I shouldn't have. <laughs> um, they, they were pretty bad. Yeah, you know, I just yeah, I remember like you know, peanut butter and jelly and gummy bears. Right, crazy stuff. Yeah, yeah. Did did they kind of give you like free reign of what to put on there? Or were those on the script? 
you know what? I can't remember. Right. I, I can't remember. But, you know, I, I I had a lot of free reign to do whatever struck me funny in the moment. So, um, it, so that's probably why I can't remember. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so then you get a, a Bond movie. How did that come about, License to Kill? Well, you know, that was... Uh, that was um, just an audition. Uh, Jane Jenkins and Jane Burstyn, um, you know, were huge um, casting directors at the time, and maybe still are, I'm not sure. And um, But uh, they were casting the film, and they had brought me in for something prior, but uh, they didn't have any, any copy um, from the film itself. And given the nature of the character, they pulled some some sides from, I think it was a miniseries that was just being done at the time called The Billionaire Book Club. And they gave it to us to read. And they brought in a lot of people to read for that role. I mean, I happened to see uh, the audition tapes, you know, and uh, I saw a couple of people like Billy Zane and people like that who right. read for the role. And... Um, but I, I read for it, uh, and they just put me on tape. The casting directors put me on tape, and there was nobody else in the room as I was reading, so that took some of the pressure off. And um, and then they they passed the the audition tapes on to the director, John Glenn, and um, and he liked my tape, and so he just had me in to meet him, which was really great to not have to read it again and again and again. He just had me in to meet him. We had a nice conversation. You know, I remember we talked about his days in the Royal Air Force. I, I always try to do that with directors when I meet them is, is turn the steer the conversation away from me and onto them. Right. You know, sort of like being on a date, you know. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so, you know, I remember we talked about his days in the RAF. And um, so that meeting went well. I think it was mostly him meeting me to see if, if he thought I was somebody he, he could work with, you know, personality-wise or whatever. And then then he had me in to uh, meet um, Barbara Broccoli, and I think Cubby Broccoli was still our producer at the time. I think that was the last one that Albert R., a.k.a. Cubby Broccoli, actually produced. He was the original producer of the original Bond franchise. Um, it is, it, uh, so Albert Broccoli... His daughter Barbara Broccoli, his I think stepson Michael G. Wilson, um, who in, in Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Broccoli are still the producers of the Bond franchise. Okay. Uh, so they were all there, and but again, I just had to meet them and sort of talk to them, and um, and then uh, then they made me, made made the offer. How, was was that a, a fun fun shoot for that? Oh, it was tremendously exciting. Mm -hmm. I mean, because, you know, we're, we're down there in Mexico for a lengthy period of time going all over Mexico. Uh, we were we were in uh, mostly shooting at Churubusco Studios in, in Mexico City. Um, but we also went to up in the mountains to Toluca. We were shooting over in Acapulco where... Um, Sanchez's mansion supposedly was, and then we were, and then those big uh, tanker chase sequences at the end we shot in Mexicali, out in the desert on the Baja, um, and um, you know it was incredibly exciting stuff to just be on the set for because there was no CGI. You know, if you had an eighteen-wheeler tanker truck, you know, up, you're driving on, on uh, up on its side. On, on one set of wheels, you know, just on the wheels on the right side of the vehicle, um, that was that was uh, an actual stunt driver doing that. This guy named Remy Julien, a famous uh, um, French stunt driver, um, and you know, if, if that tanker truck then goes off of a cliff and hits an airplane, they're actually <laughs> doing that, right? You, you know, and and. Uh, and then when they blow that tanker truck up, they blow up a tanker truck, you know. And so it was really something to be on that set. And because, like, at the end, um, when I get shot um, and I, I fall to the ground, 
you know, I'm in front of this tanker truck that's on fire. There was so much fire and so much heat that I could barely lay still and play dead long enough for them to yell cut. Right. Because I, 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 it was so hot that I thought I was going to catch on fire. So, I mean, it was really, it was really something else. Oh, yeah. Were you a fan of the Bond movies before getting the role? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I still am. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not like, I don't watch all of them religiously. There are a few I watched. All the Roger Moore ones I absolutely loved, and the one that you were in, uh, a couple other new ones. But I haven't seen like all of them still. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, I've really, I've really loved Daniel Craig. I thought He's I thought great. Timothy Dalton was like the 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 first Bond to kind of uh, to, the first actor to take Bond in a darker direction. Yes. And uh, make it plausible that this guy actually is a killer. Right. You know, and um, you know, and has and has some some issues, and uh, uh, and I think I kind of feel like Daniel Craig kind of picked up where Timothy Dalton left off. You know, whereas you know, there's two ways of playing Bond, kind of in a darker direction and in 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 a lighter direction. You know, and, and sort of in the lighter direction would probably be Roger Moore, of course, and yeah. Pierce Brosnan. Right. And in a darker direction is more Sean Connery. Timothy Dalton and, and Daniel Craig. Yeah, yeah, you absolutely nailed it. You're, you're right. But um, <laughs> the next movie I want to talk about, uh, which I'm shocked that she even agreed to do it, was uh, Repossessed, kind of this spoof oh, yeah. on uh, yeah, The Exorcist with, with Linda Blair. And yet yeah. another comedy legend you know, later in his career with Leslie Nielsen, you know, Airplane Naked Gun and everything like that. Uh, that, yeah. that, was, that, that was a fun movie. Oh, it was so fun to do. Um, Linda Blair is a lovely person, first of all, and was very game uh, to make fun of herself, right. which I thought was tremendous. Uh, Leslie Newton is one of the most delightful people I've ever met, and um, uh, once he found out that he could make me laugh, um, I was in trouble because he used to get it. He used to his favorite thing was to the fart machine, you know, crack me up, crack me up during takes, right. you know, and uh, so I, I actually started to get nervous. I said to him, you know, you got to stop making me laugh, you know, I'm going to get fired. And he goes, oh, oh I'm not going to let him fire you. You're, you're, you're too much fun for me to, you're, you're too much fun to have around, you know. <laughs> so, um, but he had this little thing that he carried around in his hands right. that was like, it was like a little accordion, you know, that made like a, a farting noise. Right, yeah. And he could play it, he could play it like a Stradivarius. He could get all <laughs> kinds of, you know, tones and pitches and everything out of it. And it was hilarious because he would just, he would just, he would, he would let one rip, you know, at the most unexpected moments. And, and I don't know, he, uh, he was just hilarious that way. And his, I, one takeaway from working with him was that, his motto was never be older than 18. Hmm. And, you know, in other words, don't, don't become too much of an adult, you know, act like a grown up, which of course he did, yeah. but you know, never lose your, your sense of silliness. And um, that's why he was so great in those movies because he really was a very funny, silly person, but his, his, his demeanor as had, as had been established in so many movies was very kind of, uh, you know, almost stern and deadpan. And so that contrast was hilarious. Yeah. yeah Robert Hayes, when I had him on, told the story also about the little fart machine during filming of Airplane. Oh, and it was just... Oh, oh, he had it all the way back then? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was, his, that was his zen, that thing. You know? Yeah. You know, and it was sort of, I think it was sort of almost like a kind of cue to himself and the people around him, right. like saying, you know, because the, the day, the thing about film production is the days are long. Yeah. People should take themselves very seriously. And, and then that's when things can get kind of uh, nasty. And he, it was this way of himself and everyone are around him. Don't take yourself too seriously. Right. Yeah. So, um, I got to mention, cause now it's a, you know, it's, out there and everyone is like, I guess, obsessed with it now, the, the revival of Beverly Hills, 90210. And, oh, yeah. Yeah, and you, you had a memorable role. I don't know if you call it a cowboy rapist or a rapist cowboy. I don't, I don't know 
what the proper term would be. I, I, think, I, think, I think either one is acceptable depending on whether or not you're in America or Britain. Right. Um, I, <laughs> you know, I think in America it's cowboy rapist and, okay. uh, and, uh, uh, in, in, and in Britain it's rapist cowboy. But um, either way, uh, you know, it was uh, another, you know, bad guy that I've, I've managed to accumulate along the way. Yeah. But... Um, I had a I had a nice time working on that. Every everyone on that show was was pretty nice, you know. Um, and uh, Jenny Garth, who I, was mostly who I worked with, is an excellent actress and a, a very lovely person. And um, the guys on that show were just tremendous. Um, I'm, I'm still Facebook friends with Ian Zaring okay. and um, Jason Priestley is a total act. Um, uh, you know, in, in terms of how he greets guest stars who come on the set and stuff right. like that. Very nice guy. And Luke Perry, um, I actually sort of became friends with because um, uh, his son and my son went to preschool together. Oh, wow. So I would see him at all these, like, parent kind of function things. And um, he was a lovely, lovely person, and, and his, his uh, sudden passing recently was was tremendously sad because he was just the nicest guy right yeah no it was definitely too bad yeah 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 so do you think your role as the cowboy rapist helped you for the magnificent seven <laughs> uh, you know what i think it did absolutely nothing for me right <laughs> and, and did not help me secure that role one bit but uh it, the visuals have been good right i'm sure yeah <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, I, I had Michael Bean on a few months ago, who was all you know, on Magnificent Seven, and we, we oh, had yeah. yeah, we were our our interview lasted over two hours, and we didn't even get a chance to talk about that show. Um, were were you? Um, is that also another one where they asked you, can you ride a horse, shoot a gun, and you kind of lied your way through casting? You know, they they um, they never did, so I never had to lie. Oh, perfect. Um, <laughs> that was just that was just based on the acting, but. Um, we did get instruction in, you know, uh, the, the, the gun stuff, you know, just in terms of like, you know, quick draw. We had, we had, we had a quick draw expert, a guy named, I think his name was West Flowers, if I recall correctly. He was like, he was, he's like actually, he was actually one of these guys who could out anybody. They would, they have these contests somehow with blanks because otherwise the body count would get uh, unacceptable. Right. Um, but um, he taught us stuff like that, and we had a lot of instruction from um, our, our wranglers and our stunt performers in, 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 in getting us to be uh, better on a horse. And um, we, for the most part, got pretty decent. Right. Yeah, and that, that cast was you know pretty solid, besides, you know, Michael, you had, you know, Dale Mifkit, and... Um... You know, Ron Perlman. There was a lot of Rick Worthy, another you know solid actor. A lot, a lot of really good. Andy uh, Babovic, um, yeah, and Lori uh, Holden. Lori Holden. Yeah. So. Um, you know, it was, it was uh, on Walking Dead and all that kind of stuff, and it was an ec- excellent cast, and um, it was a lot of fun, and um, the character of Ezra was so much fun to play, and the uh, producers John Watts and Penn Bencham gave me a ton of latitude to rewrite my own dialogue because I wanted to give Ezra this way of speaking in such elevated language. Right. So, you know, in, in, in what they used to call high gluten language, um, that they could barely understand what he was saying. And, uh, you know, they, they let me do that. And, and it was, that was, that was a lot of fun too. You know, I would say something like, can I have a gold tooth? And they'd say, yeah, sure. Hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> that just to get fitted for a gold tooth and, um, but uh, yeah that, that was great fun and then I got to work years later with Ron Perlman again on Hand of God so that was fun right yeah and all the guest stars I mean I, I can't name every show you've guest starred there's so many are you actually surprised you haven't done a Law and Order I, I, am I surprised I haven't done a Law and Order yeah I can't it almost makes no sense yeah right uh, <laughs> I feel like it's like it, that's the one that got away, right. um, you know, because, um, uh, you know, sometimes my IMDb, when you scroll through it, looks like, you know, 
um, you know, what's available on Netflix. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. it's like every TV show of the last 30 years. And um, so, uh, but yeah, you know, because uh, how, how did I not do a Law and Order? I mean, I did CSI twice, and CSI Miami, um, you know, um, Crossing Jordan, I, you know, did, did every, every, uh, Every show that had you know features a, a body on a slab, yeah. you know, and uh, so. But uh, yeah, Law and Order. I've never done one. I would love to work for Dick Wolf, right? You know, because those are those are residual machines too. Yeah, absolutely. And, and speaking of that, um, it's the 30th anniversary of Seinfeld's debut, and you probably are. It's the 30th anniversary of what? Seinfeld, the Seinfeld debut of Seinfeld, oh, yeah. and. Your, your, you know, your character of Jimmy is probably the best one-off guest star in the show's history. Um, how, how was that casting up? And like, what was, um, was there a real-life Jimmy that you ever talked about? No, I, I don't. I, I think that that was just a conceit that 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 Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld kind of came up with, or. Or, or one of the writers on the show, uh, you know, Spike Ferriston, or they, they had, a, a, you know, incredible writing staff. And um, uh, I, I think that was just a conceit that they came up with, you know, like the, 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 the close talker. Right, or, yeah. Or, you know, these High talker, kind of yeah. like these, these, these kind of, uh, kind of oblique so, social observations, you know, that, that right. the person refers to himself in the third person, which is so kind of like punishingly grandiose and obnoxious and um i i when i read it i kind of immediately got you know what kind of guy this should be you know someone who's really really enamored with himself yeah and um and so um the way that happened was very interesting because um uh i i, I went in and it was sort of a last minute audition i went in I read, and Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld were in the room when I was reading, and uh, and then um, I, I, as I was leaving, Mark Hirschfeld, the casting director, said, hey, "Hang on a second, wait out there." They brought in a couple more people. They kept me waiting around, and then then um, Mark comes out and goes, "Okay, um, you got the part, so uh, why don't you go downstairs because we're having a table reading right now." Oh wow! <laughs> so I went immediately into rehearsal. So uh, that it, it happened really fast, and it was and that was a fun experience because that was another one where I was pitching lines, you know, uh, during rehearsal, you know, that ended up making it into the show because right. Larry David, you know, has this this attitude. He'll, he'll take a good idea anywhere he can get it. I mean, and. It's not surprising to me that later on he did a show that was structured like Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is largely improvisation. Right. It just kind of gives them a, a premise or a scenario, and then they go from there. So he was very, unlike a lot of uh, sitcom producers and writers, he was very open to, you you know, throwing out a funny line. And so, like, when I was, you know, like, I one, one, one line that I know was mine was, Jimmy's going into shock, you know, you know, <laughs> right. and, and stuff, stuff like that. And, um, and, uh, so that was fun to be able to do that and to kind of contribute in that way. And, and, uh, and, uh, yeah, I, I I'm happy that you said there was a, a memorable one-off because I ran into Larry David later and he told me it was one of his favorite episodes of the series, which made me happy. Yeah. It's, it's, it's my, my favorite episode of the series and I laugh so hard every time I see it. It's like I've seen it for the first time. I mean, I mean, you have Brian Cranston, of course, and, you know, Mel Torme was great in the show. And it's just, yeah. it, it's, a, it's a legendary episode. Was there ever talk of yeah. you being in the finale? You know what? There, they had me on hold okay. for the finale for about two months. Um, I, I was supposed to be in the finale, and then I somehow got cut right before they shot it, which is too bad. Yeah, because that that would have been memorable to have you, you know, in, in the stand, you know, testifying against them. That you know. Oh it, yeah, that would have been fantastic. And again, the residuals. Of course, you know. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then you know what made you famous on that episode were those kind of like sneakers 
I, I remember those yes. training sneakers, which I remember they were pretty big back then. Were you? <laughs> yeah, the plyometric shoes. Yeah. As, as, uh, as um, uh, Kramer said, you know, the muscle has to grow or it dies. dies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Were, were you much of a basketball player? Yeah, I was. Actually, uh, when I was younger, I was very into basketball. Right. And, um, you know, uh, I, I discovered the martial arts when I was like in junior high, and then I kind of, you know, plunged into that and, and wasn't that much in anything else. But, you know, I, 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 in, my, in my earlier years, you know, I did nothing but play basketball. Right. Um, you know, I had a hoop in my, in my driveway, and every day after school, you know, I, I'd work on my fundamentals and skills and stuff like that. And, and I was on the basketball team like in seventh grade, you know, that right. kind of thing. Um, but I was obsessed with the TV show Kung Fu okay. uh, with David Carradine. And, uh, and um, you know, that year my dad asked me what I wanted for Christmas, and I said Kung Fu lessons. Hmm. And in my little town in Illinois at that time, there was no Kung Fu to be had. And so he found a Taekwondo school, which hmm. at that time no one had heard of either, right. um, in, in, a, in a nearby town. And I started studying there, and I said, sort of. Then I, I I quit the basketball team and plunged right into uh, martial arts. Okay. How how far did you get? In the martial arts? Yeah. Um, you know, I I, I I am still training in it to this day. I okay. mean, I got a black belt in Taekwondo when I was about sixteen. Maybe I just turned seventeen. Um, and uh, did, I, you know, I because I, I, I kept that going for about ten years. And then I moved out here, and um, and then you know I was realized some of my deficiencies, you might say, in terms of fighting, and so I started to study other things because Taekwondo is all about kicks, right. high kicks, and stuff like that. <clears throat> but then I kind of went on a kind of a kind of an odyssey of studying this and that and the other thing, and I studied boxing and kickboxing and Muay Thai and. I trained at the Muay Thai Academy in the Valley, and also there was a very famous kickboxer named, uh, he's still alive, I believe, named uh, Benny the Jet Urquidez, who uh, had a place in the Valley called the Jet Center, studied there with people for a while, and then, you know, when the UFC came along, I then, you know, started studying jiu-jitsu, I did that for a while, got my blue belt in in jiu-jitsu, and then studied different kinds of kung fu, and now I... um, I um, am back to kickboxing. Um, I'm uh, I belong to uh, a kickboxing gym called uh, uh, Taejo Kickboxing. It's in uh, Koreatown in Los Angeles, and I have a, uh, it's a it's a great great gym, and I have a lot of great friends there. Oh, that's great, yeah. Because my son, who's 14, he's a third degree brown belt, and for years he's been like bugging me to join with him. So a couple months ago, I finally joined his class. So I'm like, oh good. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a little white belt, but I'm you know, hopefully working my way up. Well, you know that that happened with me and my dad. You know that he saw me doing it, and he got you know more and more curious about it. And so he he finally started studying himself. So uh, I think that's great. Yeah, and it's you know he's he's 14. He's already you know just under my height, so he's like 5'10 already. And, uh, it's, it's oh, yeah. yeah, it's crazy, you know, but I, I can still, you know, kick his ass, but, <laughs> well, you know, you gotta, you gotta stay on your toes. So what, what kind of martial art is it? It's a, a Kempo. Oh, great. That's, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it's a I lot of fun. I was reading a, a, a huge biography on Bruce Lee. I'm a okay. huge Bruce Lee fan. Right. There's a great biography of Bruce Lee, uh, uh, called Bruce Lee, A Life by uh, Matthew Polly, really well researched and really well written um, but uh, uh, one of the people that Bruce knew early on was a guy named Ed Parker who was sort of the father of American tempo okay yeah have you um, have you seen the real Karate Kid um, documentary it's it's about uh, Fumio Damaro who basically trained all those guys from, from Karate Kid the movie and was uh, oh really? Yeah, and, and it was oh yeah, pa- he's a so old school Okinawan yeah. uh, karate. Yeah, right. And and I've he not was seen 
Yeah, it's fascinating. He also was uh, Pat Morita's stunt double in the Karate Kid movie. So it's, it's you know, oh. yeah, it's, it's fascinating because, you know, Pat Morita, you think of like Arnold from Happy Days Beforehand, knew nothing about martial arts or anything. So in all those right. scenes, it's, you know, Fumio Demuro playing Mr. Miyagi in, in all the fight scenes. And what's, that's a documentary you said? Yeah, yeah, it's on Netflix, The, the Real Karate Kid. And what's it called? The Real Karate Kid. Check that out because I'm I'm a total geek for all that stuff. Um, the real Karate Kid. It's on Netflix. It's it's on Netflix. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm just double I'm checking. That down right now. Yeah, to make sure it's called the real Karate Kid. I, I don't want to give you the wrong title. I, I'm pretty sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I started uh, about a year ago, and it's it's fantastic. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna have to check that out. Yeah. Um, cool. Yeah, but um. I got to talk before we go. I got to talk about George Carlin because I, I, he was one of my favorites of all time, and that show you were on was was classic. The only unfortunate thing that I think it came a little before its time. It probably should have been yeah. more, more more of a cable or how we mentioned Netflix because I think the language you, you, you talk about George Carlin and the seven words, and you know you can't talk about about those words on you know just sitcom. Right, right. Um, yeah, you know. Uh... It's a shame that that show didn't make it. I mean, because we had, an, again, an incredible cast for that one. Um, Christopher Rich and um, and um, Cage French and Alex Rocco and Mike Haggerty and uh, uh, Phil Lamar and, 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 and Matt Landers. And, you know, uh, did I say Alex Rocco? Yes. Um, you know, I mean... What a tremendous cast! And then our, our our showrunner was Sam Simon, you know, the co-creator of the of the Simpsons. Right. You know, so we had this incredible pedigree going in, and of course, Colin was already legendary at that time. So it's it's a shame, you know, that you know um, we didn't quite get the momentum we needed to stay on the air. That was very sad, but uh, it was it was a tremendous amount of fun. We had a good deal of fun working on the show, and. Um, you know, and, and George, I knew pretty much up until the end of his life, and um, he was a lovely uh, person and um, thoughtful and, and, you know, uh, quietly philosophical, as you might expect, and um, uh, his wife, Brenda, was a beautiful person who, um, you know, passed away kind of not long after we finished the show, Right, and... Um, and, uh, uh, you know, bought a whole bunch of baby clothes for, for my son when, when, when he was first born and everything. She was just a very sweet woman. And, and I'm still, uh, friends, uh, with Kelly Carlin, their daughter. Oh, okay. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. in your career, I mean, you were like, you know, just top off with George Collin, all, all the comedic legends you've worked with, it's. It's it's real fascinating. Now, do you prefer comedy or drama? You know, it's it's hard for me to say. I just I like working on anything good. Right. Um, you know, and I would I would love to I would love to work on something that has a more kind of mixed tone to it. You know, uh, something like you know. Uh, sort of stuff that Dennis Leary has done, like okay. Rescue Me. Right. You know, where you have a show that, that has this blend of, you know, really heavy dramatic moments and stuff that is wildly hilarious within the same episode or even within the same moment, yeah. you know, um, because I think, I think that's where the, there's the most fun to be had, where you're, you're um, doing something that has comedic potential to it but you're, you're playing everything straight. You're playing it, you know, you're leaning into the drama of the moment, you know, where you're, you're getting, you're getting, you know, a little bit of both. Uh, uh, because, you know, I, I, I enjoy, you know, uh, basically comedy played seriously. Right. That's the stuff that I think is the most interesting. Yeah, that's great. No, you, you, you've been fantastic in both. And it, the um, documentary is called The Real Miyagi, not The Real Karate Kid. I just want to give you the right oh, title. Oh, the real Miyagi. Which, okay. Yeah, which makes a lot more sense. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But, yeah, Tony, th this was great. Thank you for your time today. I, I truly appreciate it. And uh, best of luck on your next projects. 
Okay, thank you so much. And a special thanks, Anthony, for joining me today. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at the person 019. Be sure to like the page Will Be My Youth on Facebook. Go to iTunes, check out all the past episodes we've had. While you're there, please rate and review the show. I would really appreciate it. If you don't have iTunes, not a problem. It shows on SoundCloud. It's also on Podbean. Go to livingmyyouth.threadless.com for all your merchandise. A new episode comes out every Wednesday. And we'll see you next week.